Yeah. All right, so it's been an interesting week. Pastor Vince has been in the hospital, and then uh, the accident that uh, laid uh, James Wilson low. And, uh, you know, life is, is a fragile thing, to be sure. And uh, going to a hospital and, and visiting somebody who's been put into a hospital is, is a, somewhat of a sobering uh, sort of experience. You get there, and they're lying on a bed and uh, dressed um, uh, semi-modestly. And, uh, <laughs> um, but, but the thing I think that stands out for me is, is the amount of tubes and wires that are involved in the process. The, um, you know, they have them all connected up. They have different tubes sticking into them and, and wires connected to their body parts. And, and the hospital is doing everything they can to really monitor and minister to their physical body. And, and certainly we have much to, to be thankful for living in a day and age when, when the medical care available to us is, is uh, really so, so amazing. Uh, you think back just not too many generations ago and the kinds of surgery procedures today that we say are kind of commonplace, don't worry about it, you know, lots of people have this. Uh, at one time or another, those kinds of things were, were very, very dangerous and uh, even potentially fatal. So there's, uh, there's just a sense of sobriety, I think, that comes when you are visiting with someone who has been laid low in the hospital. But, you know, the hospital, it, it focuses on the external part of man, right? His body, that's what they deal with. Because what they can't deal with is his soul. There are no tubes, there are no wires that you can connect to the human soul in an attempt to, uh, to care for it, to monitor it, to, to minister to it. And yet, the human soul is every bit as real as the human bodies uh, that God has given to us. He has made us uh, material and immaterial, body and soul. But he hasn't left us uh, in terms of the, of the immaterial part, in terms of our soul, uh, with no hope to care. In fact, just the opposite. He has given to us, uh, through his scriptures, the ability to, to minister very carefully, very closely, and very skillfully with the human soul. It is through the, the reading of the Word of God. It is, it is through the memorization of the Word of God. It is, it is through the preaching of the Word of God. It is the teaching of the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to both save and to sanctify His people, to, to move them along in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12. And Lord willing, uh, the plan is to finish chapter 12 today. I think we'll do it. Got every, every hope of doing this. And, and just to be reminded here, because chapter 12 is such an important chapter in this book. Be reminded, we've said this over and over again, that, that this is historically, this is theologically, the critical chapter of this gospel that Matthew has written. There are 28 chapters in this gospel, and this one is a very, very important chapter. It serves a a function from a literary basis within this gospel, and that is that it is the hinge pin 
of the gospel. It's, it's, it's the chapter on which the gospel swings. And as we go through it together, what, what we understand is that there is a major shift that occurs in this gospel uh, at the end here of, of chapter 12, and, and it begins uh, in chapter 13 and flowing out from there in a much different vein than how it, than how it enters in. And it's a proper understanding of, of uh, the events on this particular chapter that really explain the, the obvious change in the ministry of Jesus that we will read about throughout the rest of this book. And, and as Matthew recounts it, and it is a, a, a recounting of the actual public ministry of Jesus. It changed. In the three-plus years that he, that he ministered in a, public, in a public way among the people of God, there was a change. There was a big change. So as we finish the chapter up, uh, I don't want to get locked in, however, to, to just a, a historical theological study. Very, very uh, necessary. We're going to do that. And hopefully, by the Spirit of God, we're going to come out of this thing with, with a better understanding of what Matthew has, has recorded for us here. But I also don't want to leave it back there. And there's a temptation to do that, to just sort of leave it back there and, and say, okay, well, now I, I, now I understand what happened, and, and now I kind of understand why the, the nation of Israel didn't embrace their Messiah, and I, and I sort of understand what he's doing now, and, and it's all back there, but, it, but we don't do anything with it in the here and now. It, it feeds our heads, which is important, but it doesn't do anything with regard to our hearts. So as we work through it together this morning and finish it out, I want to do a little reflecting along the way. And that's what I've entitled this message for you, Reflections on Faith and Unbelief. Reflections on Faith and Unbelief. Because I think as we go through the rest of this chapter, there's, we can observe some things. And basically, I think what we can see are four universal principles. Four universal principles that... That, um, that will help us to think clearly with regard to the topic of faith and unbelief. And it's a crucial topic, isn't it? So let's, uh, as, let's, let's do that. We'll go through it together, and, and uh, we'll try to draw out some application along the way as we go. So first, first universal principle that I want to look at with you is, is, uh, begins here in verse 38, runs through verse 40, and it is simply this. It, it is that unbelief... Always wants more evidence. Unbelief is always in a quest for more evidence. It is never satisfied with the evidence that it has. Let's see, uh, let's see how this thing unfolds. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, verse 38, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, Jesus has, has just publicly and openly rebuked them. He has, he has called down upon them a, a dreadful condemnation and, and curse because they have responded to the, to the work of the Spirit of God in his life and the, in the miracles that the Spirit has enabled him to do by, by attributing them to the evil one. So they have committed what Jesus says is the, is the unpardonable sin and there is nothing but condemnation left for them. 
And the people, if they, if they persist in following the lead of their, their religious leadership, there, there is going to be nothing but destruction for them both now and eternally. And yet, then we get to verse 38. And, and it's almost like a non sequitur. Then some of them say to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They want, they want to see some kind of, of a supernatural display of power. Some kind of authenticating miracle. Now on the surface, the, the request for a sign is legitimate. There is a sense in which the, the, the leadership of Israel it, it, to, to care for the people should be asking anyone who would have put themselves forward as the deliverer of the nation, the, the Messiah of God, the, the great Davidic king, they should ask for some proof. And, and the kind of proof that they should be, should be looking for would be that proof foretold by the, by the ancient prophets. That he should fulfill the ancient prophecies written about him. And so on the surface in that sense, it, it is a legitimate request. It's just that the request is not what it seems. It's not what it seems. It, it's, it's really a, a wicked request, a, a hypocritical request. And, and, it's, and the way it's couched, teacher, rabbi. We want to see a sign from you. Just show us a miracle and all will be good. Now I say it's a wicked request. It's a hypocritical request. For the very obvious reason that the whole thing that has sparked this crisis is the very reality that he has done just that. In fulfillment of the, of the prophets of old, and in particular of Isaiah's prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 35, and, and I believe it's in verse six, 5 and 6, Jesus in the, in the healing of this man who was both blind and unable to speak and, and possessed of a demon, in the doing of that very miracle, Jesus has given all the sign they would need. And yet it's not enough. In fact, it's not even just that it's not enough. They, they have willfully, knowingly, maliciously attributed that work of the Spirit, the Holy One, to the evil one. So for them now to come back and to, and to say, show us a sign. Show us a sign. It's staggering. The arrogance, the hypocrisy, the wickedness, staggering. Now why are they asking for a sign? Why would they ask for a sign? And, and certainly we can't say definitively. We're, you know, we're not able to read the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. So we, we can't say this definitively, but, but certainly contextually, we can, we can make supposition and so, so doing that, it seems to me that, that what they are after at this point, having just seen a display of the mighty power of God of such magnitude that, that the crowds, verse 23, are so amazed, they don't know what to do with it. And this is a, this is a crowd of people 
in Capernaum who have witnessed the, the amazing miracles of Jesus repeatedly as he, has, he had established that as his base of ministry. They're blown away by what they had just seen. So in that, in that environment, what, why are they asking again for a sign? I think perhaps, perhaps they're, they're, they're requesting a sign here because their, their motive is evil. They're, they're intending to, to kill him. I think they're looking to discredit him. I think that's what it's about. They are, they are asking here for a miracle with the hopes that if he agrees, they'll name something that he is unable to do. They're, they're looking to cut the legs out from under him. They're looking for, for something that destroys credibility. I mean, he, is, he has just smattered or, or smeared them and, and splattered them. If I put those together, would that be a word? Could be. Openly. I mean, he has, he has demonstrated the, 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 the fact that there is no logic, there's no consistency, there's nothing but wickedness that lies behind their response. So I think, I can't say it for sure, but, but I think that's what they're after here. They're, they're, they're looking for more evidence, not to believe, but to discredit. To discredit. Well, you see, the... The Messiah is not, a, is not a circus performer. He doesn't do miracles on demand. God doesn't do miracles on demand. God is not a circus performer. He's not a, he's not a genie in a bottle that we rub and with the right formula we get what we want. He's the creator God of the universe. This is the great Davidic king. This is the second person of the triune Godhead. This is Lord of all. Now, miracles were done by Jesus, lots of them. And they were always done, the Scripture is very careful to let us know this, they were done by the leading and the power of the Spirit of God who had come upon Messiah. They are not, and their purpose was to authenticate him. They are not to provide thrills to an unbelieving heart. They're not to meet the demands of a, of a person who has no intention of believing. I'm reminded of Jesus' response to Satan. You remember in the, in the wilderness temptation? When Satan says to him, you know, trying to force a miracle here, trying to, trying to get God to act on demand and, and, and to get Messiah to, to come out from under his God-given role as, as the servant of God in humble submission. Throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. You remember that? He quotes scripture to him. He says, you know, his angels have been given charge. They'll, they'll catch you up. They won't allow your foot to strike a stone. Go ahead. Just heave yourself off. And Jesus says to him, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test, right? Get out of here. Well, if he's not going to do that, he, he's not going to accommodate this. This request born out of unbelief. An unbelief that has, that has refused in a very malicious and, and hypocritical way. 
So he responds to them. And he responds to them here really, uh, I think, in a, in a really interesting and unexpected way. In verse 39. He doesn't just say, be gone. Verse 39, he says, but he, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. I mean, you could put a period there. But the sign of Jonah the prophet. Isn't that interesting? Evil and adulterous generation. This is their true spiritual condition. They're, they are evil. That is, they are, they are actively practicing sin while, while pretending on the outside to be righteous. They are adulterous. That, that means they are unfaithful to God. Unfaithful to God. How? By knowingly refusing God's Messiah. So they're not going to get any more signs. But they are. And that's why I find it interesting. Instead of just saying an evil and adulterous generation, you know, demands a sign or craves a sign and none will be given to it, period. He goes on to say, except this or but this. Except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And and specifically, Jonah's three-day, three-night stay in the belly of the great fish. Narrated for us in Jonah chapter 1 and in verse 17. No sign, but the sign of Jonah. For just as, verse 40, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What? What, what, what does that mean? What kind of sign is that? Now, the people he's talking to are well-versed in their Old Testament, so they certainly know the, the account of Jonah. And they know that, that, uh, that Jonah spent three days, three nights, in, in the belly of the great fish. And they know that, according to Jonah chapter 2, that he, that he was alive while there and, and prayed to God, and, and God delivered him from that, vomiting the fish vomiting him out. And then the prophet going off to do what God had originally called him to do. But this is a really enigmatic kind of expression, I think. It, it's, it's, it's on the surface. It's not particularly clear. Not particularly clear. I mean, the, the point of correspondence between the two, verse 40, I think that's clear enough. Well, how, how does Jonah and Jesus, how are they the same? It's the three days and three nights. And they, and they both experienced, as it were, a resurrection. One, one figuratively, Jonah, one literally, Jesus. But of course, that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet. I mean, Jonah's has happened, but Jesus hasn't happened yet.
And, and it's an evil and adulterous generation, verse 39. So, so it's, it's got to be a, a sign of judgment. It's got to be a sign of judgment. What does it mean? I think it means this. I think what he, what he is saying to them, and, it, and it, it's, it's enigmatic, it's obscure. And by the way, you know, when you read the Gospels, oftentimes uh, people ask Jesus a question, and he, he, does, he never answers the question. Do you notice that? He just sort of like starts talking about other things. I believe what he is saying here is that bound up in this sign, and we'll talk a little more about the sign here in a minute, but, but bound up in this sign is, is that the opportunity for this generation to receive Messiah's kingdom has been permanently removed. I mean, he said as much earlier. According to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, later after Pentecost, Peter will urge individual Jews to, to escape or to be saved from this perverse generation. And you notice verse 39, he's talking about generation here. He's talking about a, about a, about a group of, of individuals who are living in space and time, a, a generation. So, so what does it mean? Well, here you go. Here's, here's what I think it means. I think specifically, specifically, the sign of Jonah with the three-night, three-day comparison is a reference to the death of the messianic king that comes about by the determination and consent of his own people, followed by God's resurrection and enthronement of him as Lord of all. The idea here is this generation's opportunity to receive Messiah's kingdom, which has been spoken of on numerous occasions as being at hand, has been taken away. It's been taken away. And bound up with that is the fact that this generation is so wicked, so evil, they will will call for his crucifixion. They will not only turn their back on him, they will not only uh, slander him, they will kill him. They will kill him. But it doesn't end there because after three days and three nights, and Jewish terminology, three days, three nights, parts of a day or a night can be counted as, as a full day and a full night. So, So after that time, God will raise him from the dead. Now, let me me show you this a little bit. Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. This is where where Pilate, verse 24, Pilate, Pilate is saying, he's washed his hands in public. He said, I am, I am, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then one of the most chilling statements is made. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. 
we will take the blame for it. They've called down a curse on themselves. They've called down a curse. According to Acts chapter 2, God intervenes according to his sovereign plan and, and raises this one from the dead. Verse 34, Acts chapter 2. For it was not David, Peter says, who ascended into heaven, but, but he, that is David himself, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The sign of Jonah is a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment. You're going to kill your own Messiah. That's how perverse, that's how wicked, that's how evil this generation really is. You're going to kill your own Messiah. But it will not end there. For for God will raise him from the dead after three days and three nights. And will establish him as Lord of all. And throw open the doorway to the Gentiles. Throw open the doorway to the Gentiles who will believe on his name. Beloved, beginning in chapter 13 and then then running through the rest of the book, we will see the development of that reality. The development of that reality. Why wouldn't Jesus give them one more sign? Because they had refused what had already been given them, what they had already seen, what they had already acknowledged. It is the, it is the malignancy of unbelief. Frequently it, it pretends its problem is intellectual. Not enough evidence. Just give me one more miracle. The reality is that it is moral. It is a refusal to submit to God. Jesus addresses the, the, the same idea here in John chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Again, responding to them, he, he answers them and he said, My teaching is not mine. They're questioning, where does this teaching come from? He says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then check this out. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. We must believe in order to understand. Beloved, it takes great patience, great wisdom, To know when a person has moved from the place of of inquiring about the Christian faith. 
to the place where they have now become hardened in their unbelief and are, and are merely playing games with God. No longer are they, they motivi- motivated out of a desire to understand that they might, and, and believe, but now they are at a place where they are, they are asking for more and more Christian evidences. Show me one more thing. And if that's where a person is, there's nothing that can be shown to them. Nothing. In fact, it's, it's fruitless, it's, it's pointless, it's counterproductive. In fact, I would say that it goes so far that it, that it only increases their condemnation. It's difficult to know when and where that occurs, to be sure. But there is a place in time. There is a place in time where their unbelief has become hardened. First principle, unbelief always wants more evidence. Secondly, advantage creates accountability. Verses 41 and 42. And here it's interesting because Jesus moves beyond the experience of of Jonah and, and his time in the, in the belly of the great fish and so forth, to the results of Jonah's preaching. And then, and then he, he follows it in verse 42 with, a, with a, the incident of Solomon and the, and the queen of Sheba. And the point of both these examples is, is that spiritually disadvantaged Gentiles have responded in faith to God on the very slenderest of, of evidence and preaching. Whereas Israel, who has been, has been given all kinds of opportunity, a mountain of evidence, as it were, will not believe. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, Nineveh was the, was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire lay to the east and north of Israel. History tells us that the Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal empires that the world has ever known. They, fear, they ruled through fear and through intimidation. They, they regularly committed the most unspeakable atrocities. When we were at the British Museum, they have the, they have the gates of the, of the palace at Nineveh. They actually have the, the, the hinges have been found, or a piece of them at least. And these are massive gates. And, and on these bronze hinge straps are, are engraved various scenes of, of Assyrian conquests. And the hinge strap that sits right about eye level as you would approach the gate, it shows the results of those cities or or nations that have rebelled against Assyrian rule, and it shows people having their hands cut off, 
having their, their feet cut off, having, being impaled on poles and being skinned alive. So how would you like to be the ambassador to Assyria, right? You know, you kind of come up and knock on the door and right, at, right in front of you, in picture form, is what happens to people who cross the Assyrians. Jonah goes to these brutal people, preaching a message of judgment. And the entire city, we're told, from the, from the king on down, repents in sackcloth and ashes. Queen of Sheba, Gentile queen, comes from what we now know as the, as the land of Yemen, down on the southern tip of the peninsula there, the Saudi Arabia. When she hears of the, of the wisdom of Solomon, she makes the long and dangerous journey across the deserts to arrive there so that, so that she can figure it out for herself, so she can confirm for herself that this man has the wisdom of God. The Ninevites, the, the queen of Sheba, there's no spiritual advantage that they have. They, they have scant information. And yet at the, and at the preaching and, and revelation of God, they respond in faith. This is a testimony against this generation of Israelites. They have every advantage. And they not only will not respond, they, they respond in the most brutal, wicked, evil way possible. What principle can we, can we draw out of this? I think simply this, the, the greater the spiritual advantage, the, the greater the responsibility to believe. The greater the spiritual advantage, the greater the responsibility Jesus says it this way in Luke's gospel, Luke 12, and verses 47 and 48. The slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Advantage creates accountability. Third, third principle. Reformation without transformation is deadly. Reformation without transformation is deadly. So unbelief always wants more evidence. Advantage creates accountability, and, and reformation without transformation is deadly. Why didn't this generation take advantage of, of Jesus' kingdom offer? Why didn't they? The answer is because they felt no need for it. They had no, they had no sense of need for the mercy of God, for the, for the grace of God. They, they, had, 
They had a perfectly satisfactory religious system built upon self-righteousness, and they had it entrenched into their hard hearts. Hey, when you're, when you're not hungry, you don't eat. It's only when you're hungry that you'll eat. This generation had been, had been morally reformed without being spiritually transformed. And so they felt no need. And it's interesting how Jesus addresses this because he, he does it through, through an illustration. He does it with a, with a story of a man and a demon. It's a story of a man and a demon. Now, Jesus just doesn't randomly stick this in here because he wants you to know something about how demons operate. Okay, you know, let's talk about the unforgivable sin. And, oh, and by the way, you know, let's stick in something about demons. In fact, I, I'm of the persuasion that this just communicates nothing about demons of any kind of, of um, serious theological value. I would not come to this to, to try to build my demonology. I think it's a story. And it's a story that Jesus created in order to illustrate the problem with this generation. And it's a powerful story. Verse 43, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. I do not believe that that is a statement about how demons feel about, you know, the climate. (laughs) Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. He has just cast out a demon, by the way, right? So it's on his mind. So I think he creates a story. And it vividly illustrates the problem with this generation. In the story here, the the man's failure is is to not fill the place that has been temporarily vacated by the demon, right? Isn't that where the problem lies? Thus, he leaves himself open to being possessed by even more terrifying spirits. That's what the story says. I think clearly the point of the story here is that the, is that the generation of Israelites to whom Jesus is talking are acting just like the man in the story. They're acting just like him. How, you might say? In what way? Well, I believe in this way. In the story, the man, you know, the house becomes clean, right? Becomes cleansed. Spirit vacates it and house is clean, put in order. I believe Jesus is talking here about the ministry of John the Baptist to this generation. I think that's exactly what he is addressing. 
At the preaching of John the Baptist, at the, at the launch of Jesus' public ministries, the crowds flocked to hear his message. Do you remember that? Just be reminded of that. Go back to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. They were responding to the message of the forerunner of the king. And the message was, repent and prepare yourself to receive the king. So having gone out to John, having, having been baptized by John, they were declaring that they were now ready to receive the kingdom. The house is now swept and put in order. But when the king came, rather than their hearts being filled with faith to, to embrace the king, what did they do? They reject him. They reject him. And they reject him in the most horrific of ways. They blaspheme the Spirit of God. And when that happens, Jesus says, There is no forgiveness for you now or eternally. Beloved, the the state of that generation becomes worse than. It was before John began. Seven, you know, why does he say seven demons, by the way? Seven is, an, is the number of, of completion in the scriptures. He's just, he's just, it's a story. What he's saying is that, is that this generation, by their, by their outward submission to John's ministry. They're they're putting their house in order. They're ready to receive the king. When the king comes, rather than the house being filled, they reject the king. And what, what roars into the vacuum is evil so far beyond what they were before that it's that it's it's almost beyond contemplation. They're in a worse state now than they had been before John came. There's no forgiveness now. Not now, not ever. By the way, when Jesus says, you know, no forgiveness now or eternally, the the state of the nation, that generation at that time, is, is frightening what happens. We read earlier, right, that they called out a curse on themselves. His, his blood be on us and on our children. Read the book of Acts. It, it details the first 30 years of the church. It encompasses that generation. And what you read as you, as you read the book of Acts is, is that you see that, they, that there's almost an insanity that overcomes the nation. The hatred, the, the brutality... I mean, they travel from city to city in order to persecute the apostles. And it doesn't end there. 
The Jewish historians, they tell us that, that the nation continued to sink into depravity. They became insane. In AD 66, the war with Rome broke out, the, the Jewish war, it's called, the first Jewish war. Broke out in AD 66, and it, and it broke out in Galilee, interestingly. And as, and as the Romans, the Roman legions, you know, descended there upon Judea to, to restore order, they moved south from Galilee, conquering one fortified city after another. Driving the people before them like, like locusts before the wind. And the Romans were brutal in the way they suppressed rebellion. But as they drove the nation before them, as it headed south towards Jerusalem for their last stand, the nation fragmented into all of these, these groupings of people that, that were controlled by warlords. I mean, think Somalia. And these groupings, there were, there were some that were in favor of the war, and there were some that were opposed to the war. And it wasn't just a peaceful political dialogue. They're killing each other. They're, they're, they're terrorizing the countryside, their own countrymen. Pillaging, killing, brutalizing. Until several of the factions arrive in Jerusalem. And there the, the city has a complete breakdown. Until there are, there are various sections of the city now in which a warlord dominates. And to go from one section to the other is to take your life into your hands. Josephus writes about all of this. He says that, the, that the, uh, the barbarity of these groups was little different from the Romans who had now gathered around the walls of the city. Beloved, we can never, ever conquer sin in our own strength. Never cannot make ourselves right with God. We cannot be reformed enough for God to accept you. We need not be reformed. We need to be transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the transformation comes only through the gospel. All right, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Listen to me. If you're struggling this morning, you're in, the, you're in the clutches of sin. It has gained a foothold in your life. You cannot conquer it through moral reformation. You can't establish a set of rules. You can't find an accountability partner. You, you can't put on an internet filter, you can't read enough self-help books, you will never conquer it that way. You may substitute one evil for another, to be sure. But you will never conquer it. Victory comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ as we, as we daily commit ourselves to it in faith and obedience. 
Reformation without transformation is deadly. And that's what happened to that nation. And that takes us to the fourth and final, and it's this, allegiance determines kinship. Allegiance determines kinship, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples. He said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, which narrates the same event, gives us a little few extra details. It says that the family has arrived because they thought he was losing it. They thought he was losing touch with, with reality. They came to rescue him from himself. He's, he's in his home and, and he is so mobbed with, with people, there's not even time to eat or rest. The crowds are pressing on him and pressing on him. He's got himself now into a place of open confrontation with the religious leadership of the nation. They're trying to kill him. His family says, time to pull the ripcord, let's get out of Dodge. But they can't even get to him. You see that? They're outside. They can't even get into the house. So they send in a, a, a message. Somebody, somebody says, hey, hey, Jesus, Mary's out there. They, wanna, they want to talk to you. And Jesus responds to them in a really interesting way, right? He uses this opportunity to make an important point. The important point is that, that entrance into Messiah's kingdom is by faith in his person, not by accident of physical birth. Entrance into Messiah's kingdom is by, is by faith in his person, not by accident of birth. He's not, he's not disputing that they are physically his mother and, and brothers. That's not the point. Only those who, who believe and do are truly related to me. Now, the story of uh, Jesus' mother and brothers, sisters, is interesting. Mary has faith by, at this point, but, but it seems as though her faith is, is weak and, and somewhat unformed. His brothers flat out don't believe. John tells us that in John 7. Later, you know, a, a, after Jesus' ascension, we find out in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 that, that Mary and his brothers are found among the believers in Jerusalem. So they do believe. But I think it's interesting and instructive that nowhere in the New Testament or in the history of church history are his sisters ever mentioned as following Messiah. 
Nowhere. It's a scary thought. Growing up Christian is a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place. It's dangerous because it it confuses or can confuse gospel socialization with the work of regeneration. The familiarity with the gospel. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. I know the Bible stories. I've heard them since I was a child. I've been at this church from the time I was in the nursery, right? You'll hear that from people. Tell us about how you came to faith in Christ. I've always been a Christian. Well, then that means you're not a Christian now. Because nobody has always been a Christian. Listen. If if physical kinship to Jesus will not save you, and that's exactly what he says, then how in the world could we think that physical relationship to anyone else, I don't care how godly your parents are, how could you possibly think that will save you? You cannot come into Messiah's kingdom by a physical relationship to anyone. You come into Messiah's kingdom only one way, and that is through a spiritual relationship with the Messiah himself. That's all. Our relationship begins by acknowledging your need. By confessing to God, God, I am a sinner. I am am lost. I am deserving of condemnation. I have, I have violated your law in thought, word, and deed. But you have sent a substitute for me. You, you sent your son into the world. And he, and he lived the life I could never live. Perfect obedience to you. And then he voluntarily surrendered himself to die in my place as my substitute. I belonged on that cross, and and yet he took it from me. All of of my guilt, all of the accumulated wrath that, that, that righteously should be poured out on me was poured out on him. And God was satisfied. He looked on him whom he had crucified, and God was satisfied. He said, it's been paid in full in him. There is nothing you can do and there is nothing you need to do. Simply, in faith, receive the gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And God put an exclamation point when he raised him from the dead and established him as Lord of all. Beloved, if you do not know Christ, if you are not spiritually related to him in vital faith union, if you are relying on anything else, anything, even for just a little bit, the Bible says you're lost. You are lost. Will you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even now as I pray?
Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that you extend yourself to sinners. Your arms lay wide open. Come, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That you took him, that is your son, who knew no sin, and and he became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That all of our guilt, all of our obligation, all of our shortcoming, all of our filth, all of our unbelief could be punished on him, transferred to his head. And all of his obedience, all of his love, all of his gentleness, all of his holiness can be transferred to us. And that we can hear through faith union with him, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your master's rest. It is the gospel, it is the power from God for salvation. Oh Lord, may you open blind eyes that they might see and hearts that they might believe and you might save them today. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Go in peace, beloved.